Greetings from the humongous. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. This is the chopper! I'll have what she's having. Hey, Dr. Jones, no friends for love! Hey, hey, Sal, how come the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit! Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago. Welcome back. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskins. And we are film-driven, and uh, Steve, we're back again talking about the cinema of the 80s. And uh, today, we're going to talk about the teenage cinema of the 80s. Teen it's movies. Teen movies. It's, it's not really a genre, right? I mean, it's hard to think of teen movies as a genre because they kind of span all genres and particularly in the 80s but in in the in the 80s it seemed like very specific kind of teen movies really became extremely popular and extremely prominent uh, well to me teen movies is a term that is very similar to like independent film or like indie rock where <laughs> the the technical definition of it exists which is could be very broad but then there's within that there's a very certain specific style that a lot of people will just use as a shorthand for what we're talking about. So while I agree with you, there are all sorts of movies that are centered around teens or have teens as a protagonist. But then a lot of times when people talk about teen movies in the 80s, what they really mean are movies written and or directed by John Hughes. <laughs> That's very true. John Hughes seems to dominate the zeitgeist of uh, of the teen-oriented cinema of the '80s, right? I mean, there's really that's that's what people think of, right? John Hughes, right away. You're, you're Sixteen Candles. You got your uh, The Breakfast Club. I mean, you name it. There's 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 a dozen of them, but they all have John Hughes's name. And John Hughes, of course, is. Uh, Chicago native, right? As far as uh, if I remember correctly, that's right. Yeah, a lot, a lot of his films are set in Chicago and uh, extremely beloved. Uh, you know, tragically died very early and very suddenly, and uh, and uh, I think there's a lot of love for John Hughes, the man. Um, let me ask you: Is there a lot of love uh, for John Hughes, the director? Uh. You know, for me, with all respect to John Hughes, I rewatched a lot of John Hughes movies recently. And while, you know, I've got nostalgia like everybody else my age, um, a lot of these movies are not real good. 
Um, that's, uh, and especially, I will say, John Hughes has some talent as a writer, but uh, he's a really pedestrian director. Now, he started out as a writer, and uh, he wrote some National Lampoon movies, things like that. Um, you know, but then Sixteen Candles in 1984 is the first movie that he actually directed. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things with John Hughes. I don't know about you, Andre. It's hard for me to separate John Hughes's talents from just my own personal taste. Like John <laughs> Hughes, he, his directing style, it's like the cinematic equivalent of dad jokes. Like, <laughs> like no gag is too corny for John Hughes. <laughs> you know, like no joke too obvious. And so, you know, just watching a lot of these things lined up in a row, it's, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's like a mix of like a really schmaltzy Hallmark card combined with some really bad jokes. And, uh, but I mean, it was very successful. People loved it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about John Hughes, Andre? Well, you know, I have a warm spot in my heart that's mainly nostalgia. You know, I, I am a fan of, Breakfast Club. I like Breakfast Club. I still like it. I don't think it's like a great film or anything. I don't think it's going to make it on my top ten of the decade list. But it's a movie I enjoy watching, and uh, it kind of speaks to my uh, uh, youth to some extent. And uh, But, I mean, short of nostalgia, I'm afraid I have to agree with you. I don't think those films hold up particularly well. If you really take the nostalgia out of it... Uh, John Hughes movies are are pretty weak and and I don't know they also how should I put this that I don't feel they hold up um, in terms of acceptable content these days I, I, I think <laughs> I think society has moved on enormously from the 80s and nowhere has 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 that shift been more obvious than watching John Hughes films. Uh, I don't, like when my kids are made to watch Breakfast Club, they literally have zero identification with what's happening. And and I think that that reality goes a little bit contrary to the, uh, to the public narrative that, you know, that John Hughes made some timeless classics for teenagers. I think if you watch those films, I'm not sure they're timeless. I'm pretty sure they're of their time. I will say he certainly had his, you know, he had his finger on the button of something in the 80s. Like, you know, his movies were very successful. People grew up with them. You know, people our age, even a little younger, like they're kind of the cinematic equivalent of comfort food for them. Sure. Um, but, you know, rewatching these movies, it's interesting. Almost all the early John Hughes movies, the main character is a girl. And so you're like, oh, that's great. He put, you know, like teenage girls as the protagonist of movies. That's admirable. But then in all these movies, the girl almost has no desires or dreams or goals other than getting a boyfriend. And so it's it's kind of a bummer to watch these movies and just like, man, that is all they care about. And another thing we'll talk about, some of these other, especially John Hughes movies, and but then the other team movies that are like John Hughes, is that these movies, it is just all character and then maybe secondarily plot. But that's all there is to these movies. I mean, they're not very interestingly directed. Um, I mean, the plots aren't usually very anything write home about so it's just all character 
So when you watch these movies, it's like, if you don't like the character, then there is not much else to hang your hat on. Because... They, yeah, it's all they have going for it. Yeah, if the characters fall flat, then the movies very much fall flat. And, uh, uh, I mean, there are standout characters, obviously, that, you know, that the we all, I think, remember from those films, right? I think John Cryer's Ducky character from Sixteen Candles is memorable. Uh, obviously, uh, Molly Ringwald is kind of iconic in many ways, but uh, it's... Like, if you actually ask what her character is motivated by, I think, like you said, it's very pedestrian and, and very kind of bourgeois. <laughs> Not yeah. that I like to throw that word around a lot, Steve, but but it is incredibly bourgeois. I mean, all she's looking for is just to date the good-looking guy. Just as an aside, watching these movies that I, you know, I hadn't seen in a long time, I, I really did have a newfound appreciation of Molly Ringwald. That, uh, you know, Molly Ringwald's one of those people who I I know she still does a little bit of acting, not as much. Uh, I haven't seen her in a long time. But she really does give some pretty nuanced performances in these movies, especially considering that she herself was an actual teenager at the time. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, watching all these movies, it's I, I am have a newfound appreciation and respect for Molly Ringwald. So my opinion of uh, John Hughes actually went down a little, but then my opinion of Molly Ringwald went up. Yeah, and I think you, I think we do have to pay a certain degree of respect to the actors and the acting in those films. I think the acting in those films is very good across the board. Molly Ringwald is obviously a star. You know, you can't deny that. She has enormous star quality. She's charismatic, and uh, and she was a skilled actor. And the w one thing we kind of have to give props to John Hughes is the fact that he's actually casting actual teenagers to play actual teenagers. Uh, that That's kind of cool, right? Yeah, and, and, and that, that I was... responding to that. Yes, that was a, a bit of an innovation on his part. That uh, And, you know, it certainly... It, it went back the other way, like, you know, 90210, which came after John Hughes' movies, was famous for almost everybody in the cast was not a teenager. <laughs> Some of them as old as 30. But uh, at the time, yeah, John Hughes, uh, most of the people in those movies were, in fact, teenagers, at least when they started out. You know, John Hughes liked to kind of work with the same people over and over again. So you see the same actors like Anthony Michael Hall popping up from movie to movie. You see people growing on screen. Anthony Michael Hall specifically is a prime example. I mean, if you think about Anthony Michael Hall, his first time I remember seeing him was in National Lampoon's Vacation, right, where he plays Rusty, uh, the Chevy Chase's son. Right. And then you see him pop up all of a sudden in all these other films and you literally see him growing, maturing into a man and also see him growing as an actor, like his acting skills develop over the years. And that's that's kind of an interesting phenomenon, too. And and um, it's certainly not unique to the 80s, but it's. Uh, but no, it is. Cool, uh, there are. Cool if you watch a bunch of these movies in a row, it is kind of fascinating to see that there are actors who might be like kind of a background role, almost an extra in an early movie in like 1982 or 84, that then by the time you get to 1988, suddenly they're the star. Like a great example is John Cusack, who is a, you know, a very small role in 16 Candles. He's one of Anthony Michael Hall's buddies. Right. And then, you know, by the end of the 80s, that guy is, you know, he's the lead in some of these teen movies. 
Well, yeah. hell, by the by the mid '80s, some of the better ones are are John Cusack movies. In fact, you know, yeah, uh, it's pretty but cool. There, there's other examples too, but yeah, you can just watch some of these actors that yeah, that they kind of and and some of that's just the nature of like who was a working teen actor in Hollywood at the time. But it is still interesting that it makes it seem like these movies have connections or almost like an acting troupe, even if they're made by entirely different people. There is there is something satisfying about following actors like that. There's something very, very satisfying about it. Uh, but uh, the reality is that in the 80s, virtually every genre is heavily represented by movies fronted by teenage characters or preteen characters even or very young adult characters and that's um that's a little that's somewhat unprecedented in my in my knowledge of film history there were certainly movies aimed at teenagers going back to the 30s and the 40s and you know, the movies in the 60s you know with Annette Funicello and you know the geared towards the teenage audience but nothing like the explosion of teen films in the 80s. Yeah, and I was trying to look up what was the reason for that. You know, like, obviously, a lot of people say some of the teen movies, like what we think of teen movies, similar to everything else, started in the 50s. You know, like the kind of post-war boom that's kind of the creation of even the term teenager. You know, rock and roll, all of that stuff. So that stuff did exist, but then... Why Why the explosion in the 80s? And what I found, Andre, through my extensive research, you have no idea, is that <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the 80s was kind of the big expansion of multiplexes, you know, the, where you could go to a movie theater and it's not just one or two screens there. There's like six to ten screens playing things. And so multiplexes became for teenagers kind of like a mall and this was a, I don't know if you ever did this Andre uh, I certainly did this uh, when I was a teenager where it's a place where your parents can like drop you off uh, where they know you're not going to get into too much trouble but you know they can kind of leave you unattended for like you know as many as four hours or something like you know you can meet your friends it's a meeting place drop the kids off they can watch a movie they can play popcorn they can play video games whatever but they're hanging out at a place, you know, without parental supervision, where uh, there's not going to be alcohol involved unless you smuggle it in. And so, therefore, <laughs> like, um, well, what do these kids want to watch? So they want to watch teen movies. They want to watch movies where the about themselves. And yeah. uh, so that is the explosion of it. You know, like, multiplexes existed before then, but it, they didn't expand as much. Like, you know, they were – a couple big cities had them, but now the 80s was when – Almost every town. Like, I grew up in a smallish, like a medium, the suburbs of a medium-sized Ohio town, you know, and we had multiple multiplex options. And that was something that did not exist before the 80s. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, the multiplexes and also multiplexes in literal conjunction with malls. You know, now yeah, you yeah. can be dropped off at the mall, hang out at the mall, go catch a movie, go back, hang out at the mall some more, go catch another movie. Or, you know, or theater jump from one movie to another. Not that I've ever done that, Steve, of course. Because <laughs> uh, that would be stealing. But that was certainly an option that movie theaters seem to uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, uh, allow their their audience to to engage in as long as they kept buying the popcorn. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that, that 
that makes perfect sense. And of course, there's just a demographic element. I mean, what, what you had was you had the children of the baby boomers who were certainly like a huge demographic element, still are. Uh, but their children, that the next generation, the generation X, my generation basically, is uh, was just coming of age in the 80s and were themselves teenagers. So Hollywood saw that market and instantly realized that, man, this is this is the market we need to target with with the films that we're putting out. And boy, did they target it, Steve. I mean, if you actually start looking through the list of the films that had protagonists that were essentially teenagers, the 80s was absolutely unprecedented. And it really hasn't that that hasn't really happened again. The '90s were certainly not that teen-oriented, but I mean, the '80s, virtually every genre, every single genre you can think of, was majorly represented by young teen, preteen protagonists. I mean, it's crazy. Like, I I was thinking that it's hard to, it's almost hard to find a film that didn't have kid protagonists or teenage protagonists, but I think that's a little bit of an overstatement, right? I mean, A, a little bit, yes. I don't remember any teenagers in uh, Dead Ringers, for example. That, 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 that would have been completely inappropriate. But, uh, but, but in so many other genres, I mean, think about all the films we already talked about. Like, even when you're thinking about the Vietnam movies, I mean, Platoon, the, the, the protagonist of that film was Charlie Sheen, who was basically like, what, what was he, like 17 when he made that film? And he was also a protagonist of some teen movies at the same exact time. So even even like places you don't expect, all of a sudden you had teen and preteen characters pop up. Indiana Jones, right? The, 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 the second Indiana Jones movie, well, they gave him a teen protagonist. Well, and that's interesting. So he's a little younger than that. It's kind of interesting that I remember when we did our thing about action movies that we discussed how, like, Tom Cruise, who most people consider, like, if you think about who are the biggest stars of the 80s, and you're like, well, there's Tom Cruise. And then you watch, uh, there's a little cameo from my cat. Uh, if you watch, if you look at Tom Cruise's filmography, Tom Cruise actually didn't really make action movies in the 80s, and he didn't really make sci-fi movies in the 80s, like all these oh. things that he's associated with afterwards. And similarly, like, the 80s, the big boom of teens, and you think, like, well, who is, the, like, the most popular director of the 80s? And it's probably, you know, it's Steven Spielberg. And Steven Spielberg, I feel like Steven Spielberg certainly was very into, had a lot of kids in his movies, but he aimed younger. Like, most of the kids in Spielberg movies, especially in the 80s, are, like, 12 or less. Right, they're preteens. Yeah, they're, they're preteens. But but you could certainly make a case that that's that's sort of part of the the overall drive. You know what I mean? The overall targeting to, towards the audience. Yeah, the people in Spielberg movies tended to be like at the age that they would still like play with toys or things like that. Like they're not right. really participating in sex comedies or anything like that. Or they're you know they're not drinking. Right, right, right. But, but, uh, well, I mean, E.T. is obviously a prime example, you know, where you, your protagonist is a kid, right? How old, how old is uh, Elliot in E.T., which you say? Oh, he's like, 11? I would say, is, yeah, that's an excellent guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but, but he also has an older brother who 
helps him out quite a bit, and that kid is a teenager. Well, yeah, but that that's a supporting character, yeah. And he and that yeah, but I mean, it's a main supporting character, right? When they're running around, his brother and his brother's girlfriends, they're with him, you know, they're part of the action. So again, like from a marketing perspective, that's the audience they're aiming squarely at, you know, kids between the age of 10 and 17. And they're heavily represented in, in that particular film as they are in many Spielberg films. Uh, not just the ones he directed, but also the ones he produced because he was producing a lot of stuff. I mean, think about Goonies. You know, you have a kind of an adventure quest movie that's entirely kid populated. Kids of different ages, right? Some kids yeah. are younger, some other kids are older. So the older kids have more kind of romantic uh, aspirations towards other other kids their age, but and the younger kids have different different aspirations uh same with a movie like uh uh lost boys you, you know your protagonists are younger but the secondary protagonists are teenagers and are going through teenager things you know particularly sexual desires and so on and so forth and a lot of the movie revolves around those uh those needs you know so Again, they're trying to cover as big a ground as possible, but definitely, definitely focusing on what is essentially minors, right? Under, yeah, people under 21 uh, in, a, in a heavy, in a, in a heavy, heavy way. Um, what do you, what was the first one, do you think? Like, what, what, I think the movie that really kind of broke it all open in the 80s, in my recollection, was a little film called Porky's. Uh, I think you're right. I think yeah. Porky's, I remember Porky's being like a seismic shift. I remember seeing Porky's. I was too young to see it. It was way too mature for me, but somehow I managed to go see Porky's. And I somehow talked my dad into taking me to see Porky's, which was terrible, terrible. Yeah. Because yeah, uh, <laughs> that movie right off the bat is inappropriate, and everybody was uncomfortable right off the bat. Uh, how my dad did not realize what we were going to see, I don't know, but God bless him. He, uh, he... He did me a favor and took me to see Porky's. And Porky's was like the pro the prototypical 80s sex comedy for teenagers, right? It revolved strictly around the notion of teenagers wanting to lose their virginity and to explore their sexual side for the first time. Uh, and there were so many other films after that that had that exact same uh, sort of motivational drive of the plot. But Porky's was the first one. Did you see Porky's, Steve? Yeah, so I never saw it as a kid. I'm just—I uh, was a little young when it came out, and uh, so I decided for this pod I would watch it for the first time. Oh, and, uh, you took for, the head. <laughs> I took the head. And for anyone who's never seen Porky's, it's—it's it's terrible. Uh, like if you—if you go looking for like what are the best like movies, teen movies of the '80s, anything like that, you'll notice Porky's is not on any of those lists. And that's because uh, uh, Porky's is a bad movie. Um, the surprising thing for me about Porky's is, uh, like, you know, a apart from how low quality it is, is that I remember seeing the ads for Porky's and, uh, you know, the, the poster, as a famously, it shows, like, a, a girl's hand in the shower with, like, an eyeball peeking through. And just, you know, the, the nature of it, 
what little I knew about it, just the title. I just assumed Porky's was like kind of the cinematic equivalent of an issue of Playboy, that the entire movie <laughs> was just like a nonstop nudity fest. And uh, so watching Porky's, there's surprisingly little nudity in it. I mean, it's it really certainly, is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very sex-obsessed movie. I mean, the, uh, the main character in the movie, his only goal is to try and have sex. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not... There's not a ton of movies. So, like, if you went into that, not looking for a good movie, but just to get a lot of nudity, I think you'd be really mad. Yeah, I remember thinking, even as a kid, that there, that there was, for a movie that was all about sex, there was a surprisingly little amount of actual sex in it. It's a movie that seems to channel the sexual obsession of the previous generation and kind of aimed it at the at the Generation X. Like, Porky's particularly struck me, or strikes me now, I don't know if it struck me when I was a kid, but now that I think about it, it does seem to be sort of a regurgitated uh, psychological drive of the baby boomers that they are now repackaging for yeah. the Generation X, you know? And, and uh, well, I'm not saying that piece. I... Well, that's the. It certainly is. It certainly is. And and you know, let's be honest. The less said about Porky's, the better. But uh, <laughs> because it's just not a very good film. But there's certainly better films, even on the subject matter. Right? I mean, the whole like losing your virginity, the pop your cherry genre or subgenre of the teen cinema of the '80s. There's certainly better films in that in that genre. Right? I mean. Uh, uh, one Crazy Summer is a good example uh, of, of that genre. The Last American Virgin is a much better film with pretty much exactly the same thematic drive. Uh, and there are certainly elements of one of the best films of the 80s period is Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is totally a teen movie and has certainly components of popping your cherry, uh, but just done so much better than Porky's, right? Sure. Uh, so, uh, but uh, but very influential film. You cannot deny the the fact that Porky's is influential. You can't deny it. And it was a gigantic hit, right? I mean, it really sparked that whole thing. And I really was surprised at the balance of nudity to in-depth examination of anti-Semitism in the 1950s to be way, way off balance, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I came in expecting a movie about guys looking at naked women through a peephole, which is gross. And I ended up walking walking out with like a like a weird examination of what it was like being a young Jewish person in the 1950s, which I really did not expect from Porky's, but I certainly got it. And that, you know, and uh, again, that, that comes back to uh, the older generation, the baby boomers kind of putting their psyche on the screen for the next generation to digest. And, uh, and, you know, I think that's a big part of the big part of the eighties teen cinema, which basically involved movies by baby boomers aimed at the Generation X. 
you know so there was a lot of that disconnect happening a little bit generationally but well uh, and also the uh, the porky's anti-semitic subplot is another example of porky's just kind of not doing much right at all where uh, they, <laughs> they uh they decided that in the middle of their like broad humor wacky sex comedy we should have like a have a little issue inserted in there <laughs> right 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 the, the, an important message of tolerance needed to be thrown in into a movie that was kind of nasty and uh somewhat uh exploitive to say the least yeah uh so yeah it it was uh it's it's not a good movie and uh very few dis few choices in the film were good but it did have a good ad campaign and the movie was a huge huge hit and i mean it's just considering the low budget nature of that film my God, it made, I mean, it made bank. Yeah, so after Porky's, you know, it kind of let them know there's an audience for this, and all the John Hughes movies you know of come after Porky's. <laughs> and, uh, right. you know, another big right. chronicler, he only made a couple of movies, but kind of loom large over the landscape of the 80s was Cameron Crowe, who got his start as a writer. And he, uh, Cameron Crowe, of course, wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High and then wrote and directed Say Anything, which are two of the, like, kind of tent poles of these teen romance slash sex comedies. And yeah. Cameron, They're the Cameron crown Crow, jewels. They're yeah. the crown jewels, Steve, of, well, of, of, of those particular films. So, those particular type of films to me. Yeah. I mean, Cameron Crowe is a guy who I've had a lot of issues with. He's one of those people who I don't hate him, but he's, he's, a, he's a filmmaker who I almost feel like every film is worse than the one that came before it. That his skills have just... <laughs> uh, but I will say, watching a lot of these teen movies, his... Particularly as a writer, you know, he's not necessarily all that skilled a director either, other than, you know, with actors. But, you know, in terms of, like, cinema, like, you know, where he places the camera, things like that, he's not super impressive. But he is, his scripts are a lot more nuanced than John Hughes. Like, uh, there's still some broad comedy, some kind of jokes. But his characters, the female characters, have a goal besides just getting a boyfriend. Uh, they're more interesting. That these are characters that I feel like a modern audience could relate to. Well, I think the, uh, Cameron Crowe's work, particularly Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which he did not direct, but uh, he certainly wrote uh, and kind of put him on the map. And then the film Say, Say Anything as well. I think they, th these two films specifically represent... Uh, the pinnacle of the genre that we were discussing. Uh, they are the best John Hughes movies that John Hughes did not direct, right? Uh, I mean, as films, they are superior. Uh, I think they are more honest about what it's like to actually be a teenager uh, and what teenagers actually go through during that time in their life in the 80s at least uh, and uh, and I think they deserve a lot of credits I mean to me Fast Times at Bridgemont High is one of the best films of the decade uh, and I it may go on my list I think it's great and I think what makes it great is the characters in that film are they feel real you know they feel very human whereas I think in John Hughes films they feel like caricatures a little bit you know and uh uh, not always, not to denigrate John Hughes, but uh, uh, but I think all of that stuff, all of these kind of characters and uh, and their needs and desires work much better in a film like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and a film like Say Anything. Uh, so um, props to Cameron Crowe. But the most interesting thing to me, Steve, is that while most people think of teen cinema from the 80s 
in terms of Fast Times and Ridgemont High or in terms of John Hughes films, as we said before, the fact of the matter is that virtually the entire cinema, virtually every genre that came out of Hollywood revolved around teenage characters in the 1980s. Uh, every genre you could think of, like horror genre. When we did our horror episode, Steve, we kept talking about Friday the 13th films and Halloween films, um, all these franchises, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. These were all movies with teenage protagonists, all of them, okay? Um, you can talk about science fiction, okay? So we have uh, Weird Science, we have Back to the Future, we have Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, E.T. we already mentioned, uh, an excellent film called Real Genius uh, with Val Kilmer. Um, sure. You had fantasy films like Labyrinth and uh, Never Ending Story, again, with ch child and teenage protagonists. You had straight-up action films like Red Dawn. Um, you had weird satire films like Heathers. Um, and again, more like stylized horror films like Lost Boys, um, or even weird, like, international nuclear catastrophe thrillers like War Games, you know, or, or just bizarro, like, just weirdo films like Repo Man. Sports movies, you got Karate Kid, you got Hoosiers, you got All the Right Moves, you got Vision Quest, all sports movies, even a Western, which was dead and buried in the 80s, but you had the Young Guns film, right? Uh, Young Guns 1 and Young Guns 2, even better than Young Guns 1. Uh, both kind of reviving the Western with teenage protagonists. Um, so really kind of a unique, uh, unique period, a unique period. And, and, and the more kind of I, I looked into teenage cinema of the 1980s, the more shocked I was by how prevalent prevalent it was during that decade it's it's really it's really kind of amazing and also how many good films came out of that period you brought up heathers because heathers to me you know like it it was certainly it's a studio project it's not some crazy independent production but heathers when i was growing up was considered like the indie rock or punk version of all these teen movies sure like, uh, that was the movie that the kids who were into, like, The Cure and The Smiths, like, this was their movie. That uh, they, they thought right. John Hughes movies were hokey, but Heathers was where it's at. So, and Heathers was kind of the end of the 80s. It was 89, but it was an interesting bit of, like, counter-programming to me. Like, it was the sarcastic, and, uh, you know, one of the things, of course, of Heathers, that, that not to spoil a movie that's, 30 years old but <laughs> the end of Heather's you know involves the protagonist like deciding she actually doesn't want to be with a guy and maybe she'd have more fun with her female friends yeah Heather Heather's was definitely done kind of as a reaction to the teen cinema of the 80s and and uh, as you said it does come at the end of the decade and and it's certainly you know it's certainly messed with a lot of the cliches that were established in the teen cinema but Heather's is also a very edgy movie like Heather's couldn't be would never be made now right because Heather's it is, is a movie about murdering your classmates <laughs> right well, and, and it's a satire movie about teen suicide i mean it's uh it, it really is kind of a an edgy movie that uh it's parts of it that it, it's 
its edges have been rounded out a little over time. But then when you watch it, like especially if I can imagine if someone didn't really know anything about it and thought they were watching the equivalent of like Pretty in Pink and Through Heather's On, they might be in for a bit of a shock. Yeah, it doesn't it 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 doesn't translate well in today's world, but, uh, but it, it is a fine movie and, uh, it should definitely, uh, should definitely be seen. I think it's, it's very, very good. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, Steve, but I actually had, I, I made a small list of my favorite teen movies of the eighties and we can talk about it, uh, a little bit down the line, but, uh, but again, I just want to stress, there's just so many good pictures that came out at that time so many good ones and uh it's really cool um but uh but uh what are some of your favorites well yeah i i guess uh we do we need to establish what qualifies as a teen movie is it any movie with a teen protagonist in it i think so steve i think so i think that's basically my overall thesis here is that i think any movie that has a teen protagonist within any context should qualify as a teen movie because because th that is what makes the 80s unique is this sort of focus on teen protagonist yeah but then i i mean uh, back to the future would be at the top of my list um and back to the future i mean talk about the epitome of a uh, baby boomers trying to impose their likes and interests on <laughs> the current generation, I mean, right? That, right. I mean that literally involves a uh, an, a teenager of the '80s traveling back in time to become a teenager of the '50s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, psychologically hilarious, hilarious movie to discuss. Obviously, a hilarious series, but also such a well-made picture. And and frankly, I like the whole franchise. So you know, I have a real soft spot for Back to the Future. Yeah, you know, some of the other ones, it's not like radical choices. Um, like you know, I think the Karate Kid. Maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. Holds up pretty well. And um, yeah. I, I love the Karate Kid. I love Ferris Bueller. That's my favorite John Hughes movie and a great Chicago movie. The Karate Kid, also, I have to say, uh, because of the recent revival of Karate Kid via the Netflix series uh, Cobra Kai, I think uh, <laughs> I think Karate Kid is looming large in the in the minds of the general public because of the success of Cobra Kai and because of the clever way in which Cobra Kai kind of recasts your allegiances in uh, in the original uh, Karate Kid uh, uh, film and its sequels and so on and so forth. So yeah, Karate Kid is uh, is is great and uh, plays really well. But I mean, my. My list is so all over the place, and and again, it just sort of underlines the diversity of the teen cinema of the '80s. You know, like one of my favorite teen movies of the '80s is a movie called Bad Boys, not to be confused with Will Smith Bad Boys films. Um, Bad Boys uh, stars Sean Penn and Asai Morales. It it is also very much a Chicago film. Um, I think Ali Sheedy is in the film as well. Um, I believe she plays his girlfriend, but uh, that is a hard-hitting drama about sort of teenager in prison, essentially in, in juvie, and uh, so it's a crime film. It's uh, Sean Penn is fantastic. This was really the one of the two breakout performances for Sean Penn. The other one being Fast Times at Ridgemont High, in which he's a lovable stoner dude, and in this movie he is a yeah. 
gangbanger badass. Um, and uh, so right away, he sort of signals his uh, range as an actor. It's quite impressive. If you've never seen that bad boys, highly recommend it. Another favorite of mine is all, another very serious crime drama called The River's Edge, um, which is... Uh, have you seen that film, Steve? I have. It's been a long time. River's Edge is... Uh... It's got a weird rhythm that I confess I couldn't quite get into. Um, I mean, it's one of those deals where I saw it, you know, well after all the hype. Uh, it's young Keanu Reeves, right? And uh, Crispin yeah. Glover. Yep, and, those uh, two. That's, they're yeah. the stars. And uh, it's, a, it's a really cool film, man. I, I know what you're saying. It is a deeply uncomfortable movie because it, the, it deals with subjects that very few movies deal with. I mean, basically, that movie revolves around a murder that takes place, and the murder is committed by a kid. And the, the plot of the film revolves around the friends of that kid covering up the murder. Uh, and um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's a complex movie. I, I don't think it's really made for kids, specifically. Uh, but because it has an almost all teenage protagonist cast, uh, it's hard to sort of uh, separate it from the other teen, teen films of the 80s to me. I just think it's an excellent film. It's, uh, it, it holds up well. Uh, Reeves is great. Crispin Glover is fantastic um, and should definitely get more work. And I think this was his kind of uh, audition reel for Back to the Future, uh, which he ended up, of course, uh, <laughs> screwing himself out of the subsequent sequels for reasons of his own. But uh, but he's great in the movie, and uh, it's an excellent film, River's Edge. It's great. Um, I, I want to give special props to more conventional teen movies, um, particularly two of them. Um, one of them is called Valley Girl. Uh, Valley Girl stars young Nicolas Cage. Like, really, this was really one of his first starring starring roles and uh, it's a movie directed by Martha Coolidge and uh, and also let's give props to Martha Coolidge and other female directors that are that are working in these genres in the 80s the these movies provided a platform for a lot of up-and-coming female directors that was not the case in the 70s you know the 70s was very male oriented and in the 80s all of a sudden you you start getting female directors coming out uh and that's pretty cool and uh valley girl is excellent it's now i think it's currently on prime so um, definitely worth seeing if you've never seen that one it really like if you want to see a movie that captures what certain aspect of being a teen in the 80s was really like i think uh I think Valley Girl is pretty cool, even if you didn't live in the Valley or in California at all. It's it's really great, and and Nicholas Cage is uh, gives a star making performance in that film. Uh, uh, also, Stand by Me, you know, another, uh, Rob Reiner. Uh, Stand by Me is yeah, Stand by Me is one I thought of that I think is just fantastic, and really, Stand by Me does an excellent job of walking the fine line between like like that specific age of like where you're kind of transitioning from like a preteen to a teen and how like some things that start off like a little things that are a little innocent, but then they, it gets more serious and just right on that border. And I feel like stand by me really captures that feeling like that part of life. 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a good film. It's beautifully written, beautifully acted, beautifully directed. You know, again, all kid cast. I mean, just 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 amazing, and and certainly stands the test of time. It's a, you know, it's it's a it's an acknowledged classic. And another acknowledged classic is uh, Risky Business, which again, very very much about what it means to be like. A person, a young person, at that at a specific point in their life. Now, granted, risky business gets into some wacky crime territory, you know, where the main characters suddenly turn into pimps. So there's some questionable elements by today's standards, but that is a very, very watchable film, and uh, it was a star-making performance for Tom Cruise because that was really the movie that that kind of put him on the map as a leading leading man. And uh, and he's certainly been on that on that perch uh, since then. So, yeah, he's he's done uh, all right for cool. himself, young Tom. He has, he has. Uh, and um, again, risky business holds up very well. Heather's we already talked about. Lost Boys, I think, is super fun. It's probably uh, certainly one of my favorite Joel Schumacher films. Uh, I'm not a giant fan of Joel Schumacher, but that one that one holds up pretty well. Excellent '80s film, funny. Got scary parts. Got a great cast of young actors. Everybody's excellent in it. Just a lot of fun. And uh, and I'm a big fan of War Games. War Games, John Badham directed, uh, starring Matthew Broderick. Um, I think a lot of people know it, kind of, on a on a gut level. But I think a lot of people haven't seen it in a while, and it holds up very well. It's a cool movie. It moves along at a quick pace. It's got some great performances, great characters, and Matthew Broderick really carries it beautifully i mean he's like he seems to be like a developed leading man right out of the gate honestly uh you know his career post-teen cinema has not been amazing uh, as a as an as a cinematic actor right uh but man when he was uh when he was young you know between war games ferris bueller holy shit i mean he was great he was great well, Dude, Matthew, yeah, there. Matthew Broderick's career is kind of interesting because he, uh, I know it's almost like he has such a very specific tone, and then I, I don't know how much range he has. Now, within that tone, he's great. Like uh, right. I, I've right. seen him on stage. Uh, he's great in the movie Election. Uh, he's, he's fantastic he, in Election. He's got a great role in uh, the movie You Can Count on Me, and you know he pops up every now and then in like just the perfect Matthew Broderick role. But yeah, the problem, the problem is just, yeah, it's, I, he doesn't, I don't know. He's like one of those guys that on one hand you describe as very talented. And on the other hand, you describe as very limited. So I feel like, yeah, his, his career options are just like, he doesn't have it in him to do some sort of radical departure. You know, he yeah. can, he's tried to play like he can play like an evil version of himself, but it's still, basically the Matthew Broderick character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it it is interesting to actually look at individual careers and and I mean we we talked about Nicolas Cage, we talked about Tom Tom Cruise. These are the guys that sort of came out of this teen cinema to become grown-up leading men, major grown-up leading men, no matter where they landed. And you could say the same thing about Robert Downey Jr., who's had 
you know, pretty amazing comeback, certainly in the 21st century, um, after being in tons of these, uh, these teen movies in the, in the eighties. Uh, but you know, then you look at some other careers like John Cusack, for example, has been in the doldrums. I mean, John, John Cusack is, uh, is, you know, just making, making a lot of these kind of off brand Chinese produced, um, you know, straight to video films, his career is not exactly, uh, uh, rocking. And, uh, you could kind of say the same thing about Matthew Broderick. It's a, it's a weird thing. You never know. I think a lot of it is personality dependent and a lot of it is dependent on luck, but, um, there it is, you know, you got guys that started in that world in those types of films who are still at the top of their game. And we mentioned them and other guys who kind of faded away with time and, and moved uh, to the secondary position. But, uh, but man, there's, uh, it's fun to like, look at some of these movies from that period and just pick out people that went on to have amazing careers. You know, like if you watch the outsiders and we talked about the outsiders a little bit, but I mean, that's that. If it was a better movie, it would be a quintessential 80s film, right? An 80s teen movie, because everybody's in that freaking thing, right? Everybody Every, is in that thing, yeah. It, uh, I mean, Ralph Macchio and Patrick Swayze, everybody's in the movie. Uh, it's it's insane. I mean, just go down the line. I just wish it was a better movie. Uh, but, uh, you know, but it's literally a who's who of future icons. Uh, but, uh, but I don't know, Steve, it's, it's, it, it's, it's almost difficult to put a bow around this episode because there's been so many movies that revolved around teenagers in the eighties. It was, it's such a huge movement and it's again, kind of unprecedented in movie history and uh, kind of needs to be acknowledged when talking about cinema of the eighties. Yeah, certainly a driving force uh, economically. Um, I'm not sure how much, culturally it was like you know it's it's other than nostalgia i'm not entirely sure how much of a lasting imprint these movies had i mean i guess you can never un underestimate people's memories but you know it obviously the team movies kind of went away for a little bit they had a minor comeback in the 90s but even then it felt a little like i don't know like some of the teen movies in the 90s felt a bit more like people just kind of were yearning to get the band back together and it, they weren't quite as big a hits. And obviously there's, every, you know, every year there's new teenagers. But, yeah, something about the 80s, it was kind of a, I, I hesitate to say a golden time for the teen movie. It was a a big time. Yeah, I, I, I would say it was the golden time, Steve, because there's been nothing like that since. I mean, a lot of that, a lot of those genres have migrated to television, to episodic television, and it works very well on television, arguably better than it would work in cinema. But cinema is such a weird state right now that uh, nobody knows what the hell's going on, right? Especially with the COVID and especially with the, you know, proliferation of streaming services and now what's happened with, you know, HBO Max and all that stuff. I don't think we'll ever see anything like this again um, certainly anything like we saw uh, in the 80s across the board but especially with teenage cinema yeah I mean people certainly aren't being dropped off at the mall these days no <laughs> no hopefully soon but uh, and hopefully there'll still be movie theaters to be dropped off at Steve but that's a whole other show 
that's a whole other show and uh, you know that may be a, a depressing discussion we'll save it for another time <laughs> yes that's all I got Steve so we'll see you next time I'm Andre Shane I'm Steve Askin this is Film Drift <laughs> <laughs>